Is China, Russia, Islam the new superpower? I ask VT's senior editor, Dr. Kevin Barrett, right here, right now, on VT Radio. Let's go. With host Johnny Punish. Okay, we're on VT Radio with Dr. Kevin Barrett. Lots of things happening in the news today. First, we got the Russian blogger blow up in Russia, the Wall Street Journal reporter arrested for spying in Russia. We got the Trump arraignment coming this week. And of course, today we really want to talk uh, with Dr. Barrett about the Russia China Islam triumvirate, the new superpower. Uh, but before I do that, I want to say a big shout out to Jap Shepper. You will. And Vaisha Luand, uh, you will said, uh, I appreciate your willingness to encourage different viewpoints. They're new members of VT. They joined us on buymeacoffee.com slash VT Media. Uh, they're definitely helping us out. As you know, we're banned by everybody in the world, uh, thanks to the Global Disinformation Index. Uh, so we don't get advertising dollars. They try to cut off our financial legs. And VT Foreign Policy dot com costs money. There's server costs. There's uh, costs to develop. There's all kinds of costs involved. Uh, plug-in costs. I mean, the internet's not free anymore. It used to be 20 years ago, but not anymore. So we need help paying for that. So if you feel inclined and like what we're doing, please support us at buymeacoffee.com slash VT Media. That would be greatly appreciated. And without further ado, I want to talk to Dr. Kevin Barrett right now. Dr. Barrett, what do you think about this Russian blogger blow up in Russia and the Wall Street Journal guys arrested? I mean, are we next? Yeah, it's, it's kind of a, a ill omen, isn't it? Uh, when they start blowing up bloggers, uh, <laughs> I guess we've technically been bloggers. Uh, or that's what we would be called. Like Seymour Hirsch is also called a blogger. Uh, we've been called that for decades now. So it's one thing to be, you know, called things that have been called a lot worse than a blogger, but it's another thing to have them coming to blow you up. So, um, check out my window to see if any drones are coming. I don't see any yet. <laughs> Right. Well, at our age, what are we going to do? You know, we're not going to run and hide. We're going to still talk the truth because that's what we do at VT. Um, but yeah, it's dangerous work out there, right? We get death threats and all kinds of weird emails and who knows what, right? So um, what do you think is happening out there? I mean, do you think this Wall Street Journal guy in Russia is spying for the United States? What Do you, do you know anything about that? I haven't done my deep dive yet. Well, of course, the American mainstream media claims that it's preposterous. Of course, he's not a spy. That's pretty much what the headline I saw this morning in the Washington Post said. But they would say that, whether or not he was a spy. So is there any possibility that he might be a spy? Well, so I suppose the Washington Post would say, oh, no, of course not, because here in America, our media would never even think of spying but, of course, that's ridiculous. We all know that, you know, Carl Bernstein wrote that article about the CIA, uh, according to, was it William Colby, owning everybody of any significance in the mainstream media. Uh, we learned about Operation Mockingbird, the single most successful program ever created by the Central Intelligence Agency. It was founded by Cord Meyer, who had formerly been a peacenik, who was then recruited by Alan Dulles, and he, uh, he succumbed to Dulles and to alcohol and became an embittered alcoholic for the rest of his life. But he was a genius. So he put together this CIA program, Operation Mockingbird, that infiltrated and steered the mainstream media and became the most successful CIA program in the agency's history. Uh, he also was involved in killing President Kennedy. Um, and apparently he was especially enthusiastic uh, as a participant 
perhaps because his uh, his ex-wife Mary Meyer was having an affair with Kennedy and indeed became the love of his life during the last year of Kennedy's life. So anyway, yeah, the media is just riddled with spooks. In fact, the whole mainstream media basically is spooks. So frankly, if you just started arresting random American mainstream media people as spooks, you know, you'd be at least half right. <laughs> so, so, you know, what am I going to say? I'm not saying anybody should. I don't think we should be running around arresting people randomly uh, just because the organizations they work for are totally controlled by American intelligence. But, you know, you can, I can understand how the Russians feel. Right, exactly. You know, we just have a bad history uh, of that in, in in journalism and spying in the CIA. It's just a fact. So for them to say that, uh, you know, he's definitely not a spy. I mean, come on, let's just... Take a longer, deep look at that and see what's happening. Now, this Russian blogger uh, apparently was blown up in, uh, I think it's Moscow, I believe it is, or, or somewhere, and, and uh, they're not sure who did it or there's a woman who did it. Uh, do you know anything about that? Yeah, there, I think some woman has been charged, and this blogger was apparently a very strong pro-war guy, so it sounds like the sort, same sort of thing that the Ukrainian Secret Service did when they murdered uh, Daria Dugina, Alexander Dugin's daughter, and were perhaps trying to kill him as well. That is, they are going after people whose ideas they don't like. And I think the Ukrainians are by far the worst at that. I mean, even the American government is actually pretty restrained in terms of going after people whose ideas it doesn't like. Otherwise, we wouldn't even be here. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> right. So, yeah, the U.S. government really only kills you if they have a reason to. You know, I mean, if, if your influence reaches a certain level, like, you know, Malcolm X or Martin Luther King or Paul Wellstone or whatever, yeah, then they'll kill you. But just because you're mouthing off in ways they don't like, they usually will just kind of try to ignore you, leave you alone, deplatform you, make it impossible to make a living, uh, right. pay all sorts oh, of assets to throw rotten <laughs> fruit at you, you know, call you an anti-Semite, yada, yada, yada. But they usually don't just come and kill you. Uh, so, but the Ukrainians, they're maniacs. You know, the Ukrainians are, are just filled with hatred. The nationalist side of Ukrainian politics has been hijacked by propagandists who specialize in whipping up paroxysms of hatred and the ukrainians uh, just absolutely hate the russians they hate everything about russians and, and they hate the ideas of russians whose ideas they don't like and they're willing to to kill them in fact they're just drooling to kill them and they they torture the russian pow's they catch they torture the ukrainians who uh, are naive enough to think that they can express their actual views. Half the Ukrainians are Russians and Russian sympathizers. They're ethnic Russian, and they've all been terrorized into silence. And whenever one of them speaks out, they get tortured, taped to lampposts, and so on. So the, the nationalist Ukrainians are absolute maniacs and lunatics, and they're the ones running around murdering people whose ideas they don't like. They have a huge death list on, on the internet. I, we might even be on it. I don't know. It's so big, you can't even keep track. So it's to me, this probably is uh, the Ukrainian government and its Nazi goons uh, who, who probably did this. Now, I want to segue to uh, this week that we're having the Trump arraignment I, as it relates to foreign policy in any way, because that's what we cover, foreign policy. But this is big news. I mean, this is big international news, right? The former president of the United States is going to face a judge uh, on Tuesday morning, which will this will air sometime on Tuesday. So it'll probably get the mugshot and probably get uh, fingerprinted. And then here comes a circus. Um, what's your feeling about what's going to happen this week? You're right. It is a circus. And it probably is going to play into Trump's hands. You know, puts him back in center stage. And that's what he likes. And makes him look like the victim, which is what all of his supporters, you know, they all feel like victims. And they see Trump as the 
sort of image of their own victimization. And, you know, they're not entirely wrong. And it's almost as if there's some kind of conspiracy among the anti-Trump wing of the establishment to uh, verify these feelings among Trump supporters and to give Trump vast amounts of free publicity. I mean, that's how they got him elected president was by attacking him so much. They gave him endless free publicity. And now they're doing it again. So, hey, maybe uh, Trump will come back in 2024 thanks to the idiocy of his haters. Okay, in reference to foreign policy, because we can go into, you know, Trump's, you know, past, his history. I mean, personally, I can't stand the guy. I don't know a lot of VT foreign policy readers, you know, like the guy. I don't. So I make my my feelings known. I, I find him to be a con man. I can't stand his moral character, but that's just me. Everybody's entitled to their opinion. But 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 as it relates to foreign policy, um, you know, how if he gets elected, how does that change American foreign policy? Well, I hate to say this, but having Trump in office really couldn't change it for the worse. And that's a, that's really saying something. But actually, the thing about Trump is, you know, I'm not a big fan of him personally, to say the least. And he's the worst sellout to the Zionist occupation of America in the history of the American presidency, which is really saying something. I mean, Johnson no conspired kidding. with the Israelis to kill Kennedy and then conspired to murder the uh, servicemen on the USS Liberty. Now, that's pretty bad. But when Trump sold out to the Israelis during his term and moved the embassy to Jerusalem, did everything they told him to, murdered Soleimani, tried to get a war going with Iran, just you know, clicked his heels, snapped to attention, saluted and followed Israeli orders. That was even probably you know, equally or more disgusting than everything Johnson did. And the other presidents aren't really all that much better either, of course. So, Trump, yeah, I'm, I'm not a big fan of Trump, and that's, of course, his weak point. However, Trump is, he is a con man, but he's a different kind, you know, he's not the worst con man in that, you know, some, most politicians are con men one way or another. And a lot of them, their shtick is like Bush's after 9-11 was, uh, you know, let's, uh, we, we, ha- we have to just go out and, and kill all these people, right? It's the axis of evil. And, and so he conned everybody into murdering, you know, a couple of tens of millions of innocent people. And that's just hideous. That's a horrible con. And a lot of politicians do that. With Trump, a lot of his con is based on this appeal to dispossessed ordinary Americans who see that their country is being stolen from them and that their country has been destroyed by uh, a bunch of uh, effete, uh, spoiled uh, nincompoops and uh, and traitors and, and scumbags. Now, of course, if he would go one step further and name the Zionists, that would be helpful. But his his con has a lot of truth to it. And, uh, and, and, you know, he resonates with a legitimate America first critique of American empire that says, what are we doing surrounding the world with 800 military bases trying to prop up the dollar so we can loot the world? Why don't we go back to being a productive country? We have the resources, we have the human resources, we have the, the capital, we have everything we need to rebuild an industrial base and actually make real stuff and be productive here in the United States, rebuild our infrastructure and shut down our empire. The only reason we need to rip off the world by floating this toilet paper dollar and forcing people to give us real goods and services in exchange for it, or we'll kill them with our military that's bigger than the next eight countries combined, is is that we followed that stupid path to empire. But we can prosper without an empire. We can shut down those military bases and end our military budget or knock it down ninety at least ninety five percent. Really, all we have no border problems at all. We we don't need probably even one percent of what we spend on our freaking military. And so Trump, he hasn't gone quite that far. In fact, he increased the military budget quite a lot, but he channels this anti-empire sentiment. What are we doing surrounding the world with military bases? Why do we need a NATO alliance? And that stuff is all correct. And he pushed back hard against the generals that wanted to go harder in Afghanistan and Iraq and Syria, not very effectively. But 
So his con has a lot of truth and, you know, a correct analysis behind it. So for that reason, I don't hate him or, you know, despise him as much as I would despise politicians with a, a more destructive con, such as uh, George W. Bush, for example. Right. You know, I, I would say the bad outweigh the good. Uh, he's a flawed character. Uh, as a messenger, you know, uh, Mahatma Gandhi was an outstanding messenger, right? He's the father of India. He's uh, revered worldwide uh, as the father of India, nonviolence, et cetera, et cetera. Didn't go after billions of dollars in his pocket. So he, he was the right messenger for India at the time. I'm not suggesting it was perfect, but I'm suggesting that Donald Trump may have good messages on NATO and things like that. But he's such a flawed character that his message gets lost under the weight of his own moral flawed character his porn stars his his billion dollar deals with the saudis you you name it uh, on and on and on it's just like come on man i mean stay focused stop doing this nonsense so you can get the message across i mean his it's just ridiculous i mean we just need a better messenger than that yeah. is there a better messenger out there somewhere in america political land that can communicate anti-war uh things like that things that are going to help humanity as opposed to this guy who just wants golden toilets and billion dollar deals and Saudis for his grandsons. You know what I mean? Yeah. I would, I would hope there are a lot of better messengers. I mean, I, I wrote in RFK jr. In 2020 and there's a movement to draft him to run in 2024. And Hey, if he won, you know, I, I would come back to the U S from my self exile in Morocco for his inauguration. Uh, so yeah, there are definitely better people than Trump out there. Right. And I think that's what we need to start looking for. You know, he's an old man. He's uh, approaching 78, I think. I think he's that old, uh, something like that. But we need a younger generation that can communicate, uh, in my view, communicate the, the, the better policies of Trump uh, as, and get rid of the nonsense of Trump, the, the ridiculous circus of Trump. I think if, if they can do that, I think the Republican Party can actually win an election. But I don't think they can win an election like this. I really don't. Um, there's just too many people that can't stand Trump. I mean, he's just all over the place pissing everybody off. So I think it's a real problem because we, we need a better way forward for America, right? I mean, that's how I feel about it. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I think even Tucker Carlson would be a huge improvement on Trump. You know, and he, he's, he's kind of an America first kind of guy too. But, you know, the thing is to be a successful politician, you know, you have to be kind of slick and, uh, and yeah. you know, appealing on TV and stuff. And so... There are a limited supply of people with that kind of talent. Let's face it, Trump does have that talent, but he's, he he's pretty much an agent of chaos, not really an agent of improving things. Right. You know, uh, that started with Reagan, the, the, the TV president. I mean, obviously, JFK got a TV the first debate, right? But I think it was Ronald Reagan that turned it into a media star. What do you think about that? Yeah, there's a whole history there, of course, where the first presidential debates that were televised was Kennedy versus Nixon in 1960. And that changed history. I guess Nixon had a bad makeup artist. And so he ended up, you know, with <laughs> yeah, a did. five o'clock shadow and this, you know, scowl painted on his face. And so he was obviously <laughs> the bad guy. And people recognize that, you know, he's got the black hat on with a bad makeup. He's the bad guy. <laughs> they voted for Kennedy. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's kind of, you know, it's been show business ever since, but it just gets worse and worse all the time. Right. Well, let's let's segue now to your article that you posted on VTForeignPolicy.com, which is Russia, China, Islam. Is that the new superpower? Go ahead and tell us what's up with that. I mean, tell us how, how what's going on. Is it the new superpower? Yes or no? Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd say yes. And 
uh, it's funny that, you know, I just I published this and then uh, Ron Unz picked it up right away and, and headlined it and came out the next day, which is this morning, with his piece along the same lines, only he's not stressing the Islam side of it. He's stressing the Chinese economic power side of it. And that's probably correct in terms of a raw power analysis. You know, what we're seeing here is that the United States has deindustrialized and, you know, we our economy is an 80 percent service economy. We are not, you know, mining and uh, producing in factories and doing you know, productive work. I and mean, the one productive sector that we have really is agriculture. And good thing we have that. And we, you know, we get a fair bit of oil out of the ground. But when you do uh, purchasing power parity analyses of different economies, suddenly the situation where the U.S. supposedly dominates the world disappears. And suddenly China's economy is something, I don't know, three, four times bigger than the American economy, maybe maybe more. Uh, Russia, it turns out, is not this tiny little backwater, but it's bigger than Germany in terms of real, you know, adjusted purchasing power parity, meaning the actual productive economy, where you're not just counting all of this nonsense, you know, people playing for in casinos and, you know, all, all of these kinds of re relatively non-productive service kinds of jobs, which are all very wonderful, but they, they're not actually producing real uh, economic benefits. And so if you, you make that adjustment and you see that the U.S. has totally lost its economic uh, predominant position that it held after World War II. And so the politics is just really catching up with the economics. And that means that China is inevitably going to be the world's biggest power. And uh, Russia right now is playing the tough cop, challenging the uh, decrepit old empire uh, militarily uh, in Ukraine. And then the, the Islamic world is poised for a comeback when the multipolar world chases Western imperialism out of the Islamic lands, because the Western imperialists have been really hard on the Islamic world, dividing and conquering with a vengeance. And of course, the extreme example of that was the 9-11 false flag that was designed to launch a permanent war on Islam by creating this illusion that Muslims had blown up the World Trade Center when it was actually their Zionist enemies who'd done that. And so this uh, once the war on Islam is over, because the Western imperialists won't be able to afford it anymore. And that, that's the end of two centuries of a really huge onslaught on Islam. I think that with China as the sort of the center of the world again, uh, that the Islamic world will be left alone and will be free to follow its own inclinations, which are towards more and more unity. That is, uh, polls have shown that about two thirds of people in Muslim majority countries want to unite into a caliphate or an ummah or you know a Muslim nation, um, and that's far more than the Europeans who really want want to be in the EU. So, uh, and then there's a common language uh, of Arabic for a great you know a lot of the or at least the historical Muslim heartland, and then all educated Muslims are supposed to learn Arabic and. If uh, if that civilization really returns big time, they will, and and there will be a common language for Islamic civilization as well. So I think there's a bright future for Islamic civilization, thanks to the uh, decline and fall of the West and its uh, its leader, the U.S., and the emergence of this Russia-China axis with an emphasis on China as the center of gravity of the world. Now let's talk about the U.S. for a second, because. Do you really think the U.S. is going to let that happen without any response? Oh, sure. Be the superpower. We're not going to do anything. I mean, what, what are we expecting from the U.S. in the coming years to respond to this? Well, that, that really depends. But uh, if you look at the closest historical comparison, both close in time and in terms of its resemblance to this situation, it would be the British Empire 
after World War II. And the uh, Suez Crisis showed that the British Empire was over because it couldn't pay its bills anymore. Now, the U.S. Empire is, you know, wily coyote over the cliff, and it doesn't realize that it there's nowhere to go but down. But it will soon enough, at which point it won't be able to pay its bills anymore either. And when an empire can't economically support itself, then it crumbles and it has to bring the troops home, which is what the British did. Uh, they let their colonies go uh, in the 1950s. And uh, that's what the U.S. is going to have to do as well. So you expect the U.S. to uh, shrink its bases around the world, call you know, close that base, close this base. Is it going to be a mission creep or it can be one big collapse? How do you see it going? Yeah, that's a good question. It really depends whether the politicians in charge are you know crazy enough to keep gambling and playing these zero sum games and, and these games of chicken like they're playing right now with the Russians in Ukraine. That war is totally unnecessary and it's totally counterproductive from the U.S. standpoint. Just like the war on Islam triggered by 9/11 was totally counterproductive and unnecessary. And if these lunatic neoconservatives were basically just propagandists with a relatively superficial understanding of the realities of geopolitics stay in power, then, you know, it could get really, really nasty because they're, you know, living in the land of their own fantasies. Like Karl Rove said, we're an empire now, we create our own reality. So in their minds, they're, they're legends in their own minds. You know, they're, they're still running the world. They can do anything they want. They can bomb anybody. They can pick on Russia and push NATO right up to Russia's borders and put offensive nuclear weapons right up to the borders of Ukraine and so on and so forth. And, and they can threaten China around Taiwan and they can keep spending all of this toilet paper money that is gradually, you know, the, the basis for it is eroding and it's maybe totally eroded as we speak. And But they, they don't realize that because they're living in their own fantasy land. And if those people stay in power, then, you know, the, the worst case, of course, would be a nuclear World War III. But there's also the possibility that uh, the people in charge or some of the people in charge will be realistic enough or non-psychotic enough to recognize reality like the Brits did in the 1950s and realize that it's time to draw down the empire or even just end it. But yeah, I, I would think that it wouldn't look like Afghanistan and Saigon with helicopters leaving the embassy in all of these military bases, but it would probably be a, a slower and more gradual process, assuming that cle you know the, the clear heads prevail in the U.S. Yeah, that's very interesting. You know, it reminds me of, of uh, after 19, I think it was 89, when the Russian, excuse me, the Soviet Union fell. Uh, I believe it was Bush 1. Uh, he, he he said something to the effect that we really didn't have any enemies, so we had to start creating enemies because the we were, we were the empire. We were the superpower after the Soviet Union fell. And it's been, what, 30 years now, but now it's gradually moving in a different direction. And here we are faced with Russia and China making alliances. We got the Saudis making deals with the Iranians. Um, and so deals are happening outside the purview of the United States. Is that a correct assessment? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, Brazil is now dumping the dollar too. And, and so, you know, most of the world is rejecting the U.S. sanctions on Russia. So the Russian economy has been harmed less by this uh, these sanctions and the war than the Western economies. And, and so that, that's really, uh, it, it would seem to be a turning point. I, I don't see how the you know, Humpty Dumpty can put it all back together again, because it's, it's the whole world that is moving away from this unipolar orientation. And again, the, the deep structural reason for this is the decline of relative U.S. economic power and the rise of power elsewhere, starting with China. 
talking about the U.S. think tanks that actually operate the government uh, when they when they they're the ones who operate Biden and Trump and all this all these think tanks out there. How are they going to change their minds? I mean, right now they're still full of arrogance and and you know we are we don't have to listen to anybody. We don't have to do, we can do whatever the hell we want. How are they going to adjust uh, to control the U.S. government to to get this mission creep so that way standard of livings for United States peoples uh, are stable as opposed to crashing uh, what we don't want to see with any u.s peoples is you know a crashing of the st- of the standard of living it'll be horrific i mean you you can't just fall that fast and expect nothing to happen so what do you think about these think tanks are, are they going to change or are they going to continue on their path to destruction well i guess the job of the think tanks is to invent some line of bullshit to support the current policies so the policies though are probably, you know, there, there may be some real scrambling to contain the uh, economic catastrophe if the dollar crashes fast. And how they're going to deal with this, I don't know. But again, the key thing is to get the neocons out of power because the neocon impulse will always be to demonize somebody, blame it on a scapegoat, and rally people in, uh, for hatred. That's their whole method. And that could lead to immense bloodshed, whether civil war in the US or nuclear war abroad. So, you know, we're, we're way overdue for a purge of the neocons. You know, the concept of purge got a bad name from people like Mao and Stalin. But if ever in history, any country ever needed a purge, it's the United States of America today. You know, after those neocons orchestrated 9-11 uh, and then drove the empire off a cliff, at some point, somebody with, uh, you know, two synapses rubbing together is going to have to notice this. And, and we really need to just eliminate these neocons from all positions of power ASAP because they are a clear and present danger to the United States and to the world. Now, I agree with you on that, but here we are, we're looking at if Trump gets indicted, uh, well, he's already indicted, but if he gets arrested and on tomorrow, which will be today on, on the thing, but they got DeSantis behind him. I mean, this guy is even more pro-Zionist, right? He's, he's already kissing the Zionist ass. Where are we going to come with some leaders that are going to have some common sense here? Where are they coming from? Yeah, well, you know, DeSantis, I think, is maybe a little smarter than Trump in certain respects. Well, he's clearly a smarter man than Trump. And uh, so it's it's hard to know, you know, to what extent he is always going to be willing to make adjustments to govern in a way other than constant confrontation, which is Trump's uh, method or, or non-method. Uh, so I, I would actually think a DeSantis regime would be more stable than a Trump regime, and that DeSantis would be more likely to make realistic policy choices. I don't think he's a neocon, and whether he—I don't think he's a true believer in that. So who knows where you know? May, maybe he's—he uh, he would get into that kind of situation where he owes the Zionists, and so he has to keep going along. With, with their stuff. But the Zionists are becoming irrelevant as the U.S. empire in the West fall. You know, the Zionists, they're the last Western settler colony. And the rest of the world has no use for that. You know, they, they'll make deals with them. China will make deals with Israel and stuff. But scratch the you know, surface of the Chinese mentality, and you'll see that they really have no use for that history of colonialism, which impacted them as well. So in this new world, there's not really going to be a place for Israel, which is getting more and more radical and unhinged all the time. So even if DeSantis, you know, gets elected and keeps selling out to Israel, it's not going to matter because if the U.S., you know, insists that the Jerusalem is the eternal capital of Israel and it's fine if the Zionists want to 
blow up the Alexa mosque and put up a blood sacrifice temple or whatever, that he can say whatever he wants. But the world is changing and uh, the real powers in the world, including in that region, probably won't accept that ever-increasing extremism and something's going to have to snap and it's going to be the so-called state of Israel. Wow, that's uh, pretty big news because we've had, uh, since World War I, uh, we've had the uh, European uh, Zionist investing in the U.S. Congress to buy up uh, our Congress, right? So that's how we got into World War I. Uh, and of course, uh, it was the state of Israel was created with the Balfour Declaration of 1917, right? The English gave that. And of course, uh, fast forward to World War II, boom, there you go, 1948. The state of Israel you know, lines up with Truman. Uh, and, and here we go. Uh, are you saying this is about to end sometime soon? Yeah, I would think so. I mean, I would think that when the period of Western global domination ends, then the last Western settler colony will also end. And, you know, whether it ends the way South Africa did or the way Algeria did, it's it's still going to end. Now, the, the Zionists pre-World War One, as far as I'm aware of, they invested, they were actually negotiating with the Ottoman Turks to try to get a Judenstadt, right? A, a Jewish state somewhere. Ottoman Turks offered them Uganda, I believe it was. They were talking about Argentina as well, uh, till uh, the, they lost the war. The Ottomans lost the war. And then they retract and then uh, refocused on England to negotiate with them, right? So do you think the Zionists will be renegotiating as they start realizing that the United States is not the place to invest their money, their power. That are they going to renegotiate with China, Russia, and other peoples, other other governments, other people in power to keep their Zionist state? Do you think that's going to happen? Well, they'll, they'll certainly try to, but because they're becoming, you know, increasingly radical, unhinged, extreme, and detached from reality, I don't think they'll be very successful at it. And also, I, I don't think that China for example, which is where the real power is going to be, is at all sympathetic to Zionism. The way that the Protestants in the West during the period of Protestant ascendancy in the West were sympathetic because they shared the same narrative. They shared the same sacred mythic narrative uh, and they could sort of plug into that. And the Jews going back in all of the, to their biblical homelands and so on, that sort of worked in a culture where the Old Testament was so powerful and uh, also, of course, the you know the economic power of the Zionists uh, played a role as well. Well, yeah, they, they still have a certain amount of economic power, but it's mostly in the West. And again, so when the West declines, then the power of the settler colony in occupied Palestine declines as well. And so, what are they going to say? I mean, they're, they're a tiny little country. Uh, yeah, they've got you know they're they've got a third of economic power because of the the power of the West. But as that declines, what are they, what are they going to have to go offer China? Say China, please prop us up, and, and China is going to be trading and getting energy from all the rest of the Middle East. And China has its own history. Again, as I said, they they have no use for uh, colonialism and, and Western domination. Right. And so I, I just don't see how uh, China or or Russia or any any of the other non Western countries are ever going to make the kind of deal uh, propping up Israel that the Western countries did. That's, uh, that would be an incredible, incredible change, wouldn't that be? I mean, it's incredible. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I've seen it come. I've been kind of saying this for for years, and I just, you know, see this uh, end point that I've seen coming for decades, actually, uh, you know, getting closer now. Now, as a human being, as a person who cares about every human being on planet, I, I happen to pledge allegiance to every human being on planet Earth, 
Uh, I don't pledge allegiance to any flag or any nationalism. That's just me personally. So as a human being, I'd like to see the children of the world, the children of the Middle East, have peace and have good jobs and good schools and places to go and, and, you know, freedom to worship as they wish, as opposed to killing each other for religion or things like that. Do you, do you, I have, I've always been promoting the Middle Eastern Union, you know, the, the, the area where everybody can have free travel instead of these borders, these English-French borders that were created by Sykes-Picot uh, 100 years ago that don't make sense. Um, is it possible, do you see that it's possible that we can have a Middle East Union or something to the effect of free travel for everybody in the Middle East, go work where you want to, worship as you please, take care of our children, uh, and not this nonsense of, of hurting each other for the sake of politicians who want to get rich. What do you think about that? Yeah, that, that, that sounds like a really good uh, kind of vision to pursue. And it would be it would be great. I mean, one, one way to try to get towards that in, in the context of the collapsing Zionist project would be for countries like Morocco, for example, where I'm headed, uh, to continue to invite Moroccan Jews who left, and in many cases were driven out of Morocco by Zionist terrorism, to return to Morocco and live as equals. Now, and we would hope that those people uh, would have been humbled a little bit by their experience at the point, you know, once Israel starts collapsing and they maybe they, they don't want to stay there anymore, uh, maybe they'll learn a little humility so they'll be good neighbors to the uh, their fellow Moroccans. And that, you know, that Morocco's policy has been to welcome them back with open arms. If you're a Moroccan Jew, you went to Israel uh, and you decide you want to leave Israel and come back home, uh, you know, well, uh, bismillah, you know, it's uh, right. So so that policy, you know, extended uh, throughout the, the Middle East would be would be great. And it could turn this, you know, apparent sort of horrific, scary, bloody collapse and the Jews being driven into the sea, all this sort of you know, specter of horror at the end of Israel into something really positive. You know, for during the Ottoman Empire for I think it was seven, eight hundred, a thousand years, you know, Jewish people lived in the Ottoman Empire and you didn't hear much about there's not a much much in history talking about the oppression of the Jewish people that occurred actually during the European uh, inquisitions and things like that. It, it, would that be a correct assessment? Yeah, that's true. That's true of Islamic Spain as well and Islamic lands in general. And I, I think part of the reason is that in, in Islam, there's this idea of protecting all the religions and allowing them uh, autonomy and, and, and a certain degree of sovereignty, not full sovereignty, because ultimately there's sort of the you know Islamic community is in charge but at part of their role in being in charge is to make sure that the Christians can run their own deal and the Jews can run their own deal. And, and so these uh, communities flourish that in many cases, the Christian and Jewish communities were more prosperous than the Muslim communities. Although it was kind of ironic, one of the reasons that you got conversion to Islam was that the, the really prosperous uh, Jews and Christians were uh, their taxes could be a little lower if they became Muslim. <laughs> so, and of course, oh. that's not how it's supposed to be. In Islam, you know, the zakat tax is supposed to equal the jizya tax on, on the non-Muslims. But in reality, the way it get, got implemented was that in some cases, you, you actually paid a little more if you're part of this really super prosperous non-Muslim minority. And so some of those people would then convert to Islam to pay lower taxes. But yeah, Islam has uh, taken relatively good care of the minority communities within its borders historically, which is more than can be said of a lot of other uh, kind of civilizations. 
And so it wouldn't wouldn't be any big stretch for that to happen again. Well, I certainly like to see that happen because, uh, again, uh, we all need freedom of worship. Uh, there's eight billion of us on planet Earth, and not all of us agree on spirituality or, or what we believe in in terms of spirituality. I think if we have freedom of that and without oppression, I think that'd be a better place to live. And I think the Middle East would benefit from that, uh, including the uh, Israelis, the Jewish people in Israel, the Christians, the Muslim people in Israel, and all over the Middle East. I'm hoping for that. I hope that moves forward. I will keep promoting it to those of you listening out there. Uh, the the quote-unquote Johnny Punish, who's been accused of being an anti-Semite, whatever the hell that means, is not true. What is true is that I want every child and every family uh, to live well, healthy, and and to have prosperity uh, in their own communities without without being oppressed. I just don't want you killing each other. I just don't want to see people punching each other in the face over religion. Well, you must be an anti-Semite to say a thing like that. <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> anyway, let's go forward. Uh, Kevin, I know you're moving to Morocco. Have, when are you planning to make the move? Uh, sometime next fall, inshallah. Okay, fantastic. Tell us about uh, how our listeners can support you right now uh, directly. How do they do it, Kevin? Well, probably the best way would be to go to uh, truthjihad.com, and that takes you to a nice landing site, and then you'll see my rubrics, include one of which is False Flag Weekly News. And so you click on False Flag Weekly News, and then you can click on the latest False Flag Weekly News show, and there you'll see at the very beginning of the list of the things we talk about on the show, number, I think number two or three in this, this week's would be the fundraiser for the show. And then uh, specifically the fundraiser for this project that we're doing in Morocco. So you can learn about it and hopefully contribute to it that way. Yeah. So let's, everybody listening out there, please support Dr. Kevin Barrett on his efforts at the false flag uh, weekly news. Let's do that. And let's reach out because again, uh, this kind of media is, is not, uh, being supported by advertising. It's not being supported by the mainstream media advertising corporate people. Uh, we are doing this uh, from our homes and, and and from our secret lairs hidden away. And I guess uh, you're in Madison, Wisconsin right now. I'm hiding out in Baja, California, Mexico. Uh, I assume everybody knows that, right? The CIA knows that. They can find us easily, right? Oh, you spilled the <laughs> secret. Difficult. Oh, yeah, it's a big secret. Right? Yeah. Where they blow up bloggers now. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, they, they know my IP, even though I use VPNs, all kinds of stuff. They got it all figured out. But anyway, so I want to say thank you for being on VT Radio today, Dr. Kevin Barrett. Fantastic conversation as always. I want to wish you a great week. Uh, let's get out there and keep talking, keep uh, spreading the truth. Let's see the world from all sides, and let's go VTForeignPolicy.com. Let's rock and roll. If you enjoyed this presentation, hit the like button now. Also, share it with your friends. And don't forget to subscribe so that you don't miss an episode. VT approves this message.